You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. This is Jordan Schrader hosting this week, and with me are Lynn Bonner and Craig Jarvis, all of the News and Observer. Uh, this week we'll talk about uh, the confirmation fight that's ongoing between the legislature and Governor Roy Cooper, and we'll talk about a new possible compromise on House Bill 2. Um, we'll also hear from Wayne Goodwin, who Kong Campbell interviewed this week, uh, and uh, or I believe last week actually, and uh, who talked to him about being the new head of the state Democratic Party after he lost his race for insurance commissioner. And, of course, we'll do headliner of the week. Uh, but let's start with confirmations. Uh, Craig, you covered that this week, and there were a couple of uh, a couple more no-show hearings for Larry Hall, who is Roy Cooper's uh, nominee, of course, for the Military and Veterans Department. And so what did, uh, what did legislators do when Hall didn't show up for his confirmation hearing? Well, there were a lot of angry words tossed about. I'll say that. Um, to bring us up to speed, about three weeks ago, the Senate laid out a schedule for the governor's uh, eight cabinet appointments that he's made so far. And the governor uh, contends that they don't have that authority to, uh, to do that, which is the subject of a, of a lawsuit that's playing out. But uh, meanwhile, the Senate has gone ahead and with its schedule and said they expect the first nominee, who is Larry Hall, to show up. And he didn't the first time. Wednesday was the second time he was supposed to show up. He didn't show up then. They said, okay, because you're uh, one of us, you're, you're used to be in the legislature, and we like you, we're going to give you one more chance, a third chance, uh, to, to show up the next day, Thursday. Um, so they kind of drew that line in the sand, and they, uh, there were <coughs> lots of hints about what might happen, you know, just how angry they would be at him if, they, if he doesn't show up. Uh, then on Thursday, about an hour, half hour before the hearing, uh, Senator Phil Berger had a news conference to say that they would issue subpoena, a subpoena to Hall to force him to testify if he didn't show up. And, and in fact, he three strikes you're out. He didn't show up for uh, for the third hearing. And uh, there was a fair amount of discussion in the uh, in the committee that was uh, considering this uh, between the Democrats and Republicans about uh, what they were doing, but. Um, they, the Republicans had the votes to uh, to proceed, and so they, uh, uh, you know, have gone ahead and issued him a, a subpoena to appear next Thursday. All right. And so, what does Governor Cooper or Hall say is the rationale for not appearing to this committee? They say that uh, that the the governor has doesn't have to start doesn't have to submit the names of the nominees until uh, May 15th, uh, um, which is a, another date in, in the law books. Um, and uh, in fact, there is that, that is in the law books that, that he has until May 15th to submit those names. Um, and the, 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 uh, the other side, though, the Republicans say, well, there's also language that says the, the Senate has, to, uh, has the authority to uh, advise and consent on, on these nominations. And they point out that the judge, uh, judges who are hearing this case didn't issue a preliminary injunction stopping them from going ahead, so they're just going ahead. So there's kind of two conflicting issues going on, uh, legal issues, uh, out of this judicial order, which the lawyers from both sides are looking at different ways, of course. And uh, 
it's hard to see. I mean, I don't know how it's how it's going to play out. And so, a court is going to decide whether the subpoena is valid or not. Or? Yeah, the subpoena itself is uh, just just uh, today, Friday. We found out the uh, governor's office filed a motion with the court to modify the subpoena so that. Hall doesn't have to uh, appear uh, next Thursday. What they're saying is, how about we just wait till this March 7th hearing uh, and see if this case is going to proceed or not, and then figure out if he has to if he has to appear or not. Uh, so that's kind of where things stand now. Is like I said, two diametrically opposed uh, interpretations of the court order. We had a story that went online today from our friends at the Charlotte Observer uh, about uh, sort of a rundown of all the court cases that are going on and kind of where each one stands. And it's just uh, pretty striking how many of these things are in the courts now. It's, it's like it's become a sort of a extra uh, legislature or uh, it's sort of everything kind of gets refereed yeah. uh, in the in the courts, including this and um, the other issues related to um, the laws that took away some of Cooper's powers, and uh, it seems like everything kind of ends yeah, up there. Yeah, it's kind of been a flare-up. There was this everything going to court in the first year or so of the Republicans taking over the legislature uh, in 2011, 2012. There was an abortion bill and a right to life or choose life license plate and uh, – I don't know, a whole bunch of things. And for a while, we were running the same kind of tab of what's in court and where do things stand because it's hard to remember. And those were gradually resolved over a few years, and now it's kind of flared up again, it seems like. What's interesting about that list, there are some things that I'd kind of forgotten about. It's like, oh, that's still going on. I mean, uh, the magistrates. (laughs) Oh, right, um, right. And um, same-sex marriages. I I'd forgotten all about that, but that's still in court. Yeah, I think there's a trial maybe in the spring coming up about the magistrates' bill. So, um, okay, well, um, how about uh, uh, House Bill 2? Speaking of things in court, uh, we had a, uh, uh, a little bit of uh, uh, news this week about um, what might happen to that in court, but uh, um, part of the news we were covering was uh, a bill that was introduced as a possible compromise uh, to HB 2. Uh, tell us about that. Uh, who I don't know who wants to well, start, I can, but you, I could tell you the over. You can right. talk about the substance. I'll tell you about the circus surrounding it. It was, it was on it was substance on, months. So yes. Right, exactly. I think that was Wednesday when uh, all day long at the legislative building there were rumors that there was a big uh, HB two repeal compromise being hashed out. And as the day went on, it took on these you know mythical proportions that this was the crown jewel of of. Uh, the HB2 re- repeal bills, there's like, what, five others that are out there. But this was the one. It was bipartisan, and it was going to solve all the problems. And uh, uh, it, I don't know that it, it's, if it's going to solve all the problems, it's going to take a while because almost instantly everybody from every side was against it, the right and the left, the governor. Uh, and so, I, you know, it just it's hard to see. Um, it's hard to know what's going to happen. I think this was a, put together by Chuck McGrady, a Republican uh, moderate from uh, the mountains, who uh, who I think made an honest kind of logical attempt to take all the different concerns uh, that have come up over the, how to deal with the repeal and put them together in a, a big puzzle that might that might fit. But it just seems like once it's all together, it doesn't fit. So right, and what it would do, it would repeal HB two and allow local governments to pass their own ordinances uh, as long as they don't involve bathrooms. Um, but it would also allow for protest petitions um, uh, if 10% people in a, in a local area sign one, that there would have to be 
um, a, a referendum, a local referendum. I think it was 10% of the people who voted okay. in the last election. Yeah, right. the last, okay. I think, Very municipal election. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, right. So, um, so there, since that was filed, um, there's been a, apparently a lot going on behind the scenes. There were some people tweeting today, uh, McGrady tweeting that uh, the governor was trying, was telling Democrats not to, not to support it, and um, one of the Democrats who had signed on has now said mm-hmm. he's going to drop out. It kind of gives uh, a little glimpse of what's been going on behind the scenes, all of the jockeying. Um, on an HB2 repeal. I know, Craig, you've been trying to nail down exactly what's happening here. Yeah, it yeah, seems like one out? of the big sticking points might be a, the provision in the in the bill that says that, uh, um, the, well, the referendum mm-hmm. provision, and uh, which, you know, gives, if, if some city council wants to broaden uh, discrimination protections, it, it's pretty easy for, to, for local residents to challenge that. And I think it's kind of a, a bone to those parts of the states that just don't want you know, that just aren't in sync with that kind of thing. So that seems to be a big stumbling block. There's some discussion about how, you know, whether how negotiable that provision is, but it's causing uh, at least one Democrat, uh, Rodney Moore, from down in the Mecklenburg area, to um, to bail out of the bill. He was one, he had signed on to support it. In the meantime, the governor said he doesn't like it, as has the NC Values Coalition. It looks like businesses, though, are starting to get behind it. Um, there was a business coalition out in Charlotte today who said, "Yeah, this is this is it." So um, I talked to someone, uh, a Democrat who was um, one of the primary sponsors, and he s- said that uh, negotiations are at a delicate stage, and he was too afraid to say much of anything. Um, so even though there are various forces working against it, it seems to be still alive. How big are the ob- objections from the right? Is this something that maybe Republicans could just pass without much help from Democrats, if any? Uh, or are there enough Republicans that just don't want any HB2 repeal that would stop yeah, that from happening? Yeah, it's a close call. I think they need the Democrats. I think they need the Democrats as a block and a big bunch of Republicans. And um, they need Berger and and the governor not to call call them off, <laughs> I guess. you know that, that I think, all like I said, all the pieces are there. I mean, I think it could be something that moves forward. It's just we've seen so little... Uh, that, that materialized along those lines that seemed hopeful, uh, this might be the one, but it's kind of a big grab bag of of issues that are all contentious. Um, well, I think that's it on that, unless anybody else wants to, unless you guys want to say anything more on HB2, and we'll uh, listen to Wayne Goodwin talk about what he's going to do as uh, head of the state Democratic Party. Uh, we'll be back after that with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Serving as the chairman for the State Democratic Party was not something I'd ever had planned to do, but the circumstances presented themselves. We we needed a leader for our state party who could be a, a partner with Governor Cooper, someone who, who knows the ropes, and, and I believe uh, I bring to this position uh, a, a, a great appreciation for not only the work of the grassroots and, and organizing outreach efforts to voters and to citizens of the state, but also have an appreciation as a, a candidate and as having served as an elected official statewide, uh, as well as the fundraising components that come that come along with that. So I believe I have uh, a number of components that were unique, uh, not the least of which is the fact that I'm from a rural part of the state, and I know that's where a lot of our efforts need to be uh, in the coming months and years. 
Well, you mentioned the rural area of the state. It seemed like the, the problem for the Democrats, at least in legislative seats last year, was that uh, we were able to flip some seats at the um, sort of urban districts, but then some of that was offset by some losses in the urban or the rural areas. How do you sort of turn that around? What, what does the party need to do to make sure that you're not only winning seats in you know Mecklenburg and Wake County, but you're also able to, to hold on to some seats out in the rural areas and sort of build the a majority or at least a non-super majority for the Republicans that way? I, I see three approaches to this. First is, is organizing those precincts and those communities where there has been uh, less of an organization uh, along the, the party line uh, in, in, in recent years. Second is honing our message to show that the state Democratic Party has a message that more strongly resonates with the needs and concerns and hopes and dreams of our of our rural citizens as well as folks who are in the urban communities. And also having a, a messenger who can deliver that message that uh, can speak with uh, with uh, uh, knowledge and and understanding of what our the concerns are from our rural our rural uh, parts of the state. Yeah, and so, I come from a rural community, mm-hmm. so I believe I can do that. Yeah, are there major differences in what people look like in communities like where you come from? Uh, you're from Hamlet, correct? Right. Um, versus what uh, folks in you know center of Raleigh are, are going to be looking from for from candidates who are running for the legislature. Well, in rural communities, in my experience, uh, there's a, a, a growing interest over, over many years in jobs and in having enough resources for our public schools and to help with, uh, with positive growth. Uh, in many of our rural communities, we are see, seeing a, a slowly changing demographic uh, that has been at a faster pace in, in the urban parts of North Carolina. But I think that when you focus on uh, the Governor Cooper's approach and our, our Democratic Party's approach to providing a, a, a fairer tax system that supports our middle class, that recruits jobs to help our middle class, uh, and that provides greater opportunities for folks, that resonates with, with the rural communities of, of the state. Yeah. Was that a concern this year that uh, it seems like a lot of the rhetoric, and, and some of this may have been the party, some of this may have been the, the way the, the news reports went, was that the focus was on HB2, which obviously is a biggest concern to the urban communities that are having economic losses and maybe have more of a, a socially liberal outlook. Uh, did that overshadow the the jobs message in, in some of these rural communities um, over the past year or two for, for what the Democrats were trying to get out there? Well, I, I think there are a number of issues that that uh, did not keep in mind what is of, of, of uh, greater interest in our rural communities. And I think that when you talk about jobs, when you talk about our public schools, expansion of Medicaid, uh, having a fair tax system to help our middle class, uh, I think those things uh, were not underscored as much as they could have been. Now, no one person, no one party can control the message or the dynamic, but uh, there were a lot of uh, issues that that uh, received tremendous airplay uh, over the last campaign cycle that, uh, you know, perhaps uh, prevented folks from realizing that the Democratic Party of North Carolina is the best party for fighting for opportunities for all. Looking ahead to the uh, next several elections, the the party was obviously in in pretty – uh, fervent mode towards 2017. Now, of course, the courts have put that on hold, and there's a lot of uncertainty whether that'll happen at all. How do you plan and, and recruit candidates when you don't know whether the next election is going to be in six months or in 18 months? Well, it certainly makes it difficult when you when you have uh, that question out there, but there is such uh, a, a passion 
and a zeal uh, and a fervor for having uh, candidates in districts that have gone unchallenged and having Democrats run in districts that have not had Democratic candidates before. Uh, even though we don't know the districts yet, we need to harness that energy and recruit and further recruit candidates and prepare them for the election, no matter uh, whether it's in 2017 or 2018. So uh, th- there is a tremendous amount of energy out there, and however the districts uh, uh, turn up, uh, we will be prepared. Sort of outside of the upcoming elections, what do you see the role of the state party as being during what I assume will be a fairly contentious long session coming up with uh, probably a number of uh, battles between the governor and, and the Republican legislature on a, a number of issues? We don't really know exactly which issues they may be yet, but, but where is the state party's role in all this? I think the, the state Democratic Party's role is to help ensure a consistent message as to what is happening. There's so many moving parts in in the political world, and particularly when you get into the legislative branch with with bills and amendments and, and procedural and parliamentary motions and the like, it is utterly confusing for the for the average citizen. And I think it's it's vital for the party to help cut to the chase and to be a partner with Governor Cooper and his administration and with the Democratic leaders to uh, underscore what is happening and why it matters that we have a Democratic voice and the Democratic proposals be supported and not things that are off the rails. Yeah. Um, looking at the uh, election at the party level last week, uh, obviously a fairly diverse group of folks who are coming in alongside you as the, the officers. How important is that to the sort of what the public face of the party looks like for, for folks across the state who are, are seeing various minority groups that they feel like may be targeted under the, the new administration nationally? What message do you think that this election on Saturday sent? Well, I am very inspired, inspired, and and uh, excited about the results of this of this election for our state party officers. Any political party that purports to represent the entirety of this state, but does not, uh, sends a, a a negative message. And I think that the fact that the Democratic Party elected the most diverse set of officers in its history and the most diverse set of officers, I believe, in the history of our modern political system in this state, uh, is a true reflection of North Carolina. Uh, we have urban and rural. We have, we have every, every component you can think of, you know, uh, with African-American and biracial and uh, gay and, 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 like I said, young and old and, and folks in between. It, uh, it's a, a extremely diverse and, and of different faiths represented. That is North Carolina. North, the face of North Carolina is a diverse, uh, diverse one, and the Democratic Party has taken a tremendous step in electing leaders that represent the the, the people themselves. And uh, uh, I would hope that it will sow the seeds for the other political parties to do the same. But uh, we will see what happens. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Headliner of the week. And it is time for headliner of the week, where we talk about the most important or interesting or influential person, place or thing, I suppose, in this week's news. Uh, So, uh, Lynn, who's your headliner of the week? 
the headliner is going to be an empty chair. Um, there was a chair set up for uh, Larry Hall in a committee this week that he did not fill. Uh, and we've seen empty chairs used to political effect um, for a while. I mean, we can all remember Clint Eastwood talking to an empty chair at the GOP uh, 2012 convention. Uh, they've been used to political effect um, in, in, in debates. Even. Yes, <laughs> in right. Debates, yeah. So um, I think this uh, is continuing along and uh, a long line of uh, empty chairs in politics. So I'll take the chair. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Headliner of the week the gets the chair. All right. Empty chair in the hat for headliner of the week. And Craig, who's your headliner? My headliner is uh, three-star general H.R. Uh, McMaster, uh, who Trump chose as his national security advisor. Uh, he, he resonates here in North Carolina in that he uh, got his post, did his post, postgraduate work at uh, UNC Chapel Hill and uh, where he wrote an interesting dissertation that had kind of cut against the grain, which laid out the idea that uh, during the Vietnam War, the military brass should have stood up to the uh, Johnson administration uh, more forcefully in that, in rather than and should have gone in with more firepower, I think, and not, would not have prolonged the war as long. And, uh, but the interesting thing is he took that dissertation and really quickly turned it into a book that was, that was published and is actually well, uh, well known in military circles. And uh, I, I spoke to, to a professor who was on his dissertation committee who said that it, there was, it was part of this kind of wave of post-Vietnam military literature that, that were, they were sort of anguishing over the loss, military loss in Vietnam and were or is kind of looking for explanations, and uh, so that was kind of a uh, kind of kind of interesting to me. It was something I ha I had not heard of the of this general or that book, but it was interesting. Yeah, you sometimes hear about a soldier scholar, and I think yeah. that was the phrase that you used in the story. Exactly. Uh, he kind of fits in that category. Okay, well, H.R. McMaster in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, but I am going to go with empty chair because I like how it ties the. Uh, I, I like how it ties the uh, the theme of the uh, week together. We had uh, empty chairs set up for Richard Burr and Tom Tillis in the town hall meetings uh, that were being held uh, to uh, uh, highlight the fact that they weren't doing town halls, and uh, we also had uh, Larry Hall's empty chair uh, in the confirmation hearings. Uh, usually we might think about empty suits or something like that, but not necessarily empty chairs. So, okay, empty chair, you are this week's headliner of the week. Congratulations, uh, chair. Congratulations. <laughs> congratulations, <laughs> chair. We'll, uh, we'll uh, give that as a tribute to the uh, empty chairs we have this week for, uh, for Colin and Will. Uh, all right, well, that's it for headliner of the week, and uh, make sure to come back and listen again next week to Domecast. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the daily print edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.